Welcome to the Oxfam podcast. My name is Sophie Mack-Smith and today we're talking about cash transfers in emergencies. I'm here with Alex Jacobs, who is the director for the Cash Learning Partnership, which is the global partnership for working on cash transfers in humanitarian programmes. Welcome, Alex. Very nice to be talking to you. Can you explain a little bit about where this concept of cash came from? Thank you, Sophie. Great to be here. Cash has been around as an idea in the sector for a while, but really after the uh, Boxing Day tsunami at the end of 2004, cash emerged as a much more substantial part of the response and was taken more seriously. Now, my organisation, the Cash Learning Partnership, was founded soon after that to bring together experience of cash and has really contributed, working with many people across the sector, to building up serious interest in cash. That culminated last year in 2016, really, with the very high profile that cash programming got in the World Humanitarian Summit. And I would imagine many listeners to this podcast might well have come across cash around that time. Many major donors and major agencies have made serious commitments to increase the scale of cash. And what's interesting from my point of view is looking across the sector at the conversation we're having. A few years ago, we were having a conversation around, is cash a good idea? Is that okay? Can we do that? Now we're having the conversation which is totally different, which is, how do we do it? How do we do this at scale and maintain quality? Thank you. So how does a cash transfer actually work? The, the basic idea is super simple. Uh, just give beneficiaries money. And we use the term cash. We're not always talking about dollar bills or you know, pound notes or whatever the local currency is. Uh, a lot of cash transfer programming is done in, uh, through, in digital methods. Could be done through mobile phones, could be done on payment cards. A lot of it is also done still on vouchers. And there's an interesting debate, a big debate going on at the moment about the use of vouchers, which tend to be more restricted. They can be spent in certain shops on certain kinds of commodities like food. So from the point of view of, uh, of an aid agency, cash transfer programming involves obviously all the normal work of understanding the context, um, really analysing what the possibilities are, the most appropriate way to uh, assist beneficiaries, and then to understand the role of cash within that. So cash can help achieve a whole range of outcomes. We could talk a bit about that. Then agencies need to decide on the most appropriate transfer mechanism and what the most appropriate size of transfer is and frequency. And all of that has to be very contextually considered you know, in the light of, for instance, government programs uh, that are increasingly providing cash and other cash-based transfers to people in need. So there has to be a consistency with what government might be doing and what aid agencies might be doing in many contexts. There has to be some level of consistency between humanitarian actors and, of course, between the amount of funding available and, and the size of programming and so on. So there's a whole lot of work to be done um, on that side. There's also work to be done in understanding how markets either are functioning or could be functioning so that um, agencies can be confident that beneficiaries can access the kind of goods and commodities and services that we hope they'll access to achieve our humanitarian outcomes. So um, what would you say would be the benefits of, of being given cash as opposed to goods in kind? Uh, the benefits are huge and the evidence is strong. Now cash isn't always appropriate and it's important just to preface any comment with that but where it is appropriate the benefits are very powerful. So cash is often a more effective way to help people because they spend it on stuff that they really need. The evidence is that people are naturally very careful with their use of limited funds in a crisis just like you or me or anybody would be if you're struggling to put food on the table for your family. Uh, cash is extremely efficient, it's, it's um, often cheaper 
to get to beneficiaries than materials are. So you don't have all the transport costs for food or for tents or for non-food items or whatever it may be. Cash is spent in the local economy. So it's a great way to help people rebuild, you know, rebuild their economy, rebuild a whole lot of social infrastructure that they will depend on to help move through and deal with any disaster, whether that's a natural disaster or conflict. And finally, of course, cash is dignified for beneficiaries. So it passes what for me is always the acid test, which is how would you want to be helped if you were on the receiving end of all this you know, international assistance? Do you want to be told to line up and given a, you know, a, a set package and told to be, thank to be thankful and then that's that? Or would you want to be able to use assistance in a way that works for you? Your people are in crisis, it's a terrible situation, the trauma is immense and God only knows what people have been through, the experiences people have been through and their families have been through. Part of helping people effectively is supporting them to be in the driving seat. And, you know, as we all know, we've talked about this a lot as a sector. We struggle in some ways to be as accountable to effective people as we would like and to be as respectful to them as we would like with many forms of programming. Cash really changes the paradigm. So it's, yes, it, it, it's that image you get after a big distribution has gone on in a very high-profile emergency and then the bit that maybe the television cameras don't cover, which is that a lot of the free stuff given is then put for sale in marketplaces because people didn't want it. That can it's happen. Sort of what it's difficult. Saying. It's inevitable, I think, when you're doing any high-volume distribution of goods that sometimes you know, we're able to do get the analysis spot-on for most people and sometimes it's not quite spot-on. Sometimes we don't get exactly the right goods to the right people. You know, that's inevitable because what we're talking about is public service provision in pretty chaotic situations and very, very challenging situations often. So sometimes we don't get it right and then I guess, you know, we all have stories of where we've seen examples of great big cans of cooking oil being sold at the marketplace down the road. So I think that explains a lot of the excitement around cash. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're starting to see that translated into real commitments by major agencies. So, for instance, many major donors have made serious commitments to cash through the grand bargain, and we're starting to see that translated into policy and practice now. UNHCR has made a commitment that they will double the amount of money they spend going out on cash programming by 2020, and NGOs are involved. For instance, World Vision has said they're going to have 50% of their global humanitarian programming through cash-based approaches by 2020. For IRC, I think the number is 25%. In any case, what we're seeing is a very broad adoption of serious targets and serious efforts to significantly increase the use of cash. So that all sounds marvellous, and it sounds as if the world is moving almost wholesale towards uh, uh, using the cash economy after an emergency and giving people cash. But you did mention earlier something about pitfalls and possible dangers. When might this not be appropriate? Right, I think that's a great question. And what we're recognising today is that, you know, cash is this fantastic tool that should be much better used, much more often used as one of the core approaches to doing humanitarian response that we all follow. But it's not always right. It's not the only answer to how to provide effective humanitarian aid, just as you're suggesting. So for instance, a lot of humanitarian aid is around providing public goods like security is the first one, and protection. Now cash may have a role to play in protection, but the evidence base is quite weak. And obviously there's a whole lot of other interventions that are incredibly important for ensuring basic protection. There are some times when markets cannot deliver all the range of goods and services that, that people need in response to disaster. In terms of cash being aware, just to, to, to dispel one myth, people have a natural concern that beneficiaries may not spend money wisely, you know, what we think of as wisely. 
Now, I can understand where that's coming from, but I think it needs to be examined quite carefully. And in fact, the evidence on this is very strong. People do spend the money on stuff that's important for themselves and their families. They really do. It doesn't get spent on um, you know, what's so-called temptation goods, you know, booze and cigarettes and so on. When people are in crisis and their families in crisis, the evidence is that they use the money available more carefully than aid agencies do. So what about the other big concern that I think some of our supporters might have, which is, do we exacerbate inflation? Well, that's a great question. In general, the answer is no, and there's good evidence on this. There are some cases when it can happen. Often there are um, a range of different supply routes for basic commodities. And so that means there can be many different small suppliers, and that helps keep uh, inflation down. Also what we find is that, irrespective of what aid agencies are doing, in many situations, there already is a cash economy after a disaster. It's not like in, you know, in the Philippines after a major uh, typhoon that the cash economy disappears. And we need to see humanitarian aid in context with that, that often we are not actually substantially altering the supply of funds in a broad locality. But in some contexts, it can drive inflation, and that's why cash programming has to be designed on a very sensitive understanding of the context, and that has to be kept up to date. So are you saying um, NGOs, um, the aid sector, needs to now employ different sorts of people to understand markets? Are we talking about economists as opposed to nutritionists, for example? Well, that's, that's a really interesting area. And it, it speaks to this wider question of, OK, so what do we do now? So we think cash is a good idea. It should be a central part of the toolbox for doing humanitarian aid. It's how I would want to be helped, how a lot of people would want to be helped. One of the things we've found since, for instance, the World Humanitarian Summit is that doing cash it's not rocket science, but it's not completely straightforward. And what you say is spot on, that we need to develop new skills and capacities as a sector in order to do cash well. It's not just a matter of writing a cheque. It wouldn't be responsible just to write a cheque to you know, a big uh, finance provider, you know, to MasterCard or Western Union or someone, and say, OK, off you go. That was a point I meant to make earlier, actually, that an another reason that we need to think carefully about how to do cash is we need to link cash to other humanitarian activities. So, for instance, in the shelter space, you can give people cash, but a lot of, uh, which is very helpful, people will rebuild their homes, for instance, after some major disaster. But there's concern about, well, how can we help people build back better and make sure that uh, housing and so on is strong and is appropriate for future risks? You haven't just replaced the slum that people lived in before the disaster. Exactly right, exactly right. So there's an opportunity there to bring in other forms of training and capacity and to make some other linkages to use cash in a smart way. Same for education. We've, in, in CALP, we've, um, part of our job is to analyse uh, what's going on in the cash world and turn this into really practical tools and approaches for all sorts of aid actors, donors, governments, aid agencies, operational agencies and so on. So we've brought together all the major global commitments that have been made on cash into a global framework for action that sets out six headline points. And pretty much this is the collective roadmap of what we've got to do next. And to be honest, it's really not rocket science, uh, but it does set out very clearly what we need to do and how we can do it. So, but it does sound as though um, cash is much more welcomed by most people in the world and much cheaper and easier and cleverer to give. So what's not to like, in what's a way? What's not to like? I totally agree. It's often the case. I think we need to be really excited about cash for those reasons. You know, we, we're expecting to see steep increases in the amount of donor funding available for cash programming 
and the amount of cash programming that agencies carry out. We're going to see big increases by, you know, by factors of two or three in the coming years. It's definitely is coming. But on the other hand, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything. And we still need to be very aware of context and very aware of figuring out how cash fits together with other humanitarian actions. And, and, and are you saying there is still a need for an NGO sector? Could it not be that a, a finance company just collects money on its own and says, well, we'll distribute it? What's the need well, for an NGO? It's a, that's a great question. And there's been a lot of excitement and debate around exactly that question. And uh, in fact, in Lebanon at the moment, some donors are experimenting with a move to uh, work with far fewer, much larger scale uh, organisations. And there's a real sense that the private sector could play a leading role in actually doing the distribution. ECHO has published guidance saying that's the way they want to go. Now, what we're still learning is, okay, so how does that work? How do we fit the distribution into all the other stuff that has to go on for effective humanitarian response? So the contextual analysis, the identification of beneficiaries, the calculation of transfer sizes and the fit, the coordination with other humanitarian action, uh, with protection goals, for instance. Uh, and with appropriate monitoring and so on. All of this is possible, but what we're now clear about is that there's, there's, there's a lot of jobs that have got to be done for a high-quality cash transfer. We should use, we should without doubt, use the most efficient transfer mechanisms possible, using modern technology, using existing infrastructure and banks and so on, wherever we can. I mean, of course we can. We should also use informal systems like the Hawala system where that's appropriate, where banks can't go across parts of Somalia or Yemen or wherever it may be. So whatever is most appropriate from a beneficiary perspective and you know, managing risks in the right way for everybody through the chain. Um, but I think we're finding that actually to do cash well, there's going to be plenty of work for everybody. And NGOs will have a role to play. So there's definitely a role to play. It's about looking at where the niches are and being a little bit more flexible, looking to the future, um, building those new relationships. I think that's exactly right. So maybe that's one of the takeaways is NGOs will increasingly need to think about how their work on cash fits into this wider system rather than trying to do it all themselves. I think we may well see some more specialisation playing to NGOs' traditional strengths. And you can always see that the MSFs or the Oxfams with specific technical expertise will continue to be needed, building hospitals, um, putting in vast plumbing systems into camps. That may be the sort of thing you can't do so easily through cash, especially individual cash grants. Right. I, th there will certainly be a need for large-scale um, public provision of key services, whether it's traditional NGOs doing it or increasingly governments or other actors doing it. You know, who knows? We know that there's a lot of flux in some of these questions, but certainly cash is not the only answer, though it is a huge part of the answer in terms of empowering individuals to look after themselves and their families as well as they possibly can. Alex, thank you so much for a fascinating talk. I am fully convinced, um, as I hope you're aware, um, for more information, people can look at your website, which is cashlearning.org, um, and follow you on Twitter, um, CALP, that is the Cash Learning Partnership. Um, and thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.